Well, this morning we are discussing the Last Supper, so we thought we'd have some food together. You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew near the end, Matthew 26. And Jesus sets up the scene in verse 27, or sorry, verse 17 through 19 of Matthew 26. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. This morning we prepared a meal that's Probably very dissimilar to the Passover meal. I'm noticing all the pork products already and the, <laughs> the leavened bread over there. But just to give us a glimpse of what the Last Supper would look like, because most of us have a picture of the Last Supper from the painting, right? And they're all sitting at this gigantic table in a row so the painter could paint them or whatever, right? But that's not what the Last Supper looked like. It looked more like this. And so I wanted to get some folks to come up here. You get free food if you come up. You have to eat it in front of a thousand people. You don't have to eat, though. But we pulled a few people out during the meet and greet and said, come on up. So if I grabbed you, come on up now. And I need some volunteers, too. Who wants to come and get some snacks? Come on up. Get some snacks with us. Anybody else? Snacks? Snacks, Carolyn? Come on up. All right. Who, how many we got here? I think we need about 12, I would say. And the only rule is you can't sit here because this is where Jesus sits. I'm not going to be Jesus, but let's just pretend. So sit wherever you like. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, fourteen. All right, whatever. <laughs> Come on, you can sit all the way around, anywhere on the blanket except for in the Jesus seat. And you're trying to figure out where do you put your feet. Mark, Tyler, and I went to Senegal this last year, and we had a meal like this on the ground, kind of gathered in a semicircle around a big plate. And the first thing I, I thought of, I, I haven't talked to Mark about this, but the first thing I thought of when we sat down to eat was, what do I do with my feet, right? Because like the food is right here and my feet, were no, it was gross. And so you can put your feet behind you. That's what they would do in those days. It's kind of uncomfortable, right? So normally what, what folks would do is they'd have kind of the cushions. It would be in a U shape. This is how the Last Supper probably looked. You got to squish in. Make some room for Carolyn, guys. Come on. One of you is Judas. Like surely not me, Danny. So normally the easiest way to sit, and you don't have to do this, but you can if you're a family, is folks would kind of lean into each other. Because, you know, if you sit on the ground with nothing for your back support for a long time, you don't have to do that. That's a little too personal. We're all family here. You sit on the cushions. Your feet would be facing away from the table because you don't want your feet, after you've been walking around in sandals all day, like right next to the ham or whatever. There'd be no ham at the Last Supper. And so everybody's feet would be away from the table. They'd be facing the table, and there'd be food everywhere. And so grab a grape or something just so people can see what it looks like. You can eat it if you want to. Grab some food. There's some cheese. There's some hummus. You could rip up that pita bread if you want to. Go after it. I'm going to talk for a little bit to these people out here, and you guys can do whatever you want. So just stay here just for a couple minutes. I will dismiss you in about four or five minutes. So you don't have to sit here, but have some snacks. So the way the Passover meal would work is a family would come together. And Passover normally would happen at family. And the way that people would eat is that the head of the family would sit right in the middle. I'm not saying that you're Jesus or anything, but would sit like right here at the head of the table. And 
around the table, you would kind of go from the greatest to the least. No offense, Sharon, but the greatest to the least around the table. And so like in my family at Thanksgiving, we always had the kids' table, and the kids' table was in another room somewhere. In those days, when the kids' table wasn't the end of the room, the other room, the kids' table was like right here, right? Because you end up talking to the people that you're around. And so there were times in the meal where the whole family could talk and share around the table. But there were other times where you just kind of have these little side conversations with a cluster of people who were around you. And so with the Passover meal, likely what would happen is folks from all over Israel who were Jewish people would come together at grandpa's house or grandma's house or at the parents' house, wherever it was, and the family would come together and they'd gather around a table like this in a U shape with their feet facing out, leaning on each other, dipping the bread and the hummus, whatever it was, and eating food together. And it was a beautiful thing. There's not much more intimate and beautiful in this world than sharing a meal with people that you love, right? You know, whether it's on the floor and it's like Moroccan style or sitting at a restaurant with some close friends and sharing stories together or having Christmas dinner with all your loved ones and remembering stories from the past. There's not much in this world more intimate than sharing a meal with people that you love. And and the Passover meal was a special meal because it was a meal where the Jewish people would come together not just to eat, but to weave God and his story into uh, their story as a family. On Passover, they would show up at a home that was set up for that event, and there'd be a table set up with a big spread, and and everyone's seat would have four different wine glasses in front of it. There'd be very specific foods on the table, and when you came in, you'd be welcomed. A servant would wash your feet because you've been walking around in sandals in the desert all day. We're not going to do that today. They'd wash your feet. You'd wash your hands and prepare to make yourself ritually clean for this holy occasion that you would have. Someone would hand you a glass of wine and you would mingle as you got ready for everyone to come. And, and when it came time to sit down together, they would sit down around the table and they'd start to eat. And at some point in the meal, the, the person at the head of the table, maybe the grandfather, the patriarch in the family, would take one of the four glasses of wine and he'd, he'd lift it up and say, let us remember that God has set up this meal by bringing us out of Egypt. And he would tell the story of the exodus from Egypt when Pharaoh didn't want to let the people go, but God delivered them through the Red Sea. And he'd say, let's remember that, and they would drink together. They'd eat some food some more. They'd have some more side conversations. And then at some point, they'd lift up the second glass and say, let's remember not just that God brought us out of Egypt, but God saved us with his mighty hand, that that is the God that we worship as a family. We worship the God who saved us from Egypt, and they would drink together. And then at some point in the meal, they lift up the third glass. They say, let's remember that God has redeemed us. He has made us into something new. He has changed us from the inside. He's done that for our family. And they drink the third glass together. They'd sing together. They'd have the fourth glass. They'd say, let's remember that God has made us a family. He is the one. And they tell the stories from the Old Testament. It was a beautiful, beautiful event with food and family with stories and God's story, with prayer and singing. And Jesus decided to share this meal not with his biological family, but with his disciples. After following Jesus for three years, the disciples had kind of become the family. Some of them have lost their families, were disowned from their families. Jesus said, this is our family now. And so this ragtag bunch of disciples and Jesus found a place where they could have a family meal together. And they gathered at a table like this. And they ate the food and they drank the four glasses together. And, and Jesus likely sat at the head of the table. Probably right like here. And they're all eating and they're mingling. And in the midst of the dinner, 
And Jesus, I don't know if he like clinked the glass or what he did, but everyone quieted down. And Jesus looked at all these people who had been walking with him so closely for three years, and he said, I tell you the truth, one of you who's eating around this table is going to betray me. You can almost sense like how heavy that moment would have been. <laughs> the disciples started chiming out, kind of one after another, not, not me, Lord, right? <laughs> Surely not me, Lord, not me, Lord, not me, Lord, not me, Lord. It would be like having an amazing meal at your grandpa's house for Thanksgiving and you're sharing stories and he stands up and, and says, hey, I got to tell you something. One of you in this room stole from me. Or one of you in this room has done something that has cost him to be kicked out of this family, right? Something like that that's so grave and it, it, it takes this beautiful meal and it breaks it. And his disciples go around and they say, not me, not me, not me. It comes to Judas Iscariot, one of the 12. Judas says, it's not me, Rabbi, right? And Jesus says, your words, not mine. You're the guy. One of us, one of the 12 that dipped in this hummus together with us. It's you. This morning, as we look at this text, we see a beautiful meal, and we see it trying to be destroyed by one who is betraying Jesus. And so we're going to wrestle together today with what betrayal looks like, what this meal signifies, and how to re-find the beauty of this intimacy of God's family in the midst of, of betrayal. So you guys did a great job. If you want to take some snacks with you back to your seats, you can, but I'm going to go over there. I'm going to read the passage, and you guys can go find your seats. I'm going to read the little paragraph before the Passover meal where Matthew gives us the foreshadowing that this meal was going to become an awkward one. We've met Judas Iscariot before in the book of Matthew. So when Matthew says, calls him one of the twelve, he's not trying to introduce Judas Iscariot. He's trying to show us just how hurtful this betrayal was. Matthew says in verse 14, then one of the twelve, one of the ones sitting around the table with Jesus that night, one of the disciples, one of the ones who saw him heal the blind, one of the ones who was called out, one of the chosen ones who would be hopefully an apostle someday, one of those, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I feel like if you're reading this text for the first time and then you get to this Passover meal, you're just feeling that, ugh. I don't know if you've ever been at a meal where you had something you had to share in the midst of it and you were just looking for the right opportunity and everyone seems to be having a good time and they're eating and they're drinking and they're talking and you're just feeling like, oh, I don't know if Judas was feeling like that. I don't know if Jesus was feeling like that. But I know that when Jesus said those words, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Everyone started feeling like that. Betrayal is a, it is a, it is a heavy, hurtful, unique type of sin. You know, it's hard to define betrayal. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's going to say betrayal is breaking a social contract or 
breaking trust, but I don't, I don't think any definition that we can kind of come up with really gets the heart of why betrayal hurts so much. Uh, if you stole your parents' car, right, that would break trust, that would break some kind of social contract, but that doesn't feel like betrayal, right? And some of you have felt betrayal. It's different. Some of you had a relationship that just broke forever because of one event. It's different. And some of you have betrayed. You've said something or done something or made a choice or threw someone under the bus or whatever it was. You did something that you don't even know why you did it, but the moment you did it, you thought, oh, no, I hope they don't find out. And then they did. And from that moment on, the relationship was irrevocably changed. Now, that's the hard thing about betrayal is the emotion that comes with the sin of betrayal for me, it feels most like grief. And where something is dead, a relationship, a piece of a relationship, a harmony, a trust. And you really can't ever fully recover from it. You know, if somebody lies to you, you can forgive them, and eventually you can kind of get over it. If your kid steals your car, <laughs> you can get mad at them. But at some point, you'll be sitting around a table and you'll be laughing about the time that your kid stole your car, hopefully. Right? <laughs> but betrayal doesn't work that way. Now, if you've ever experienced betrayal in your life, you know that you, there is no scenario where you fast forward into the future and you're laughing about that moment of betrayal someday. It's, just, it's not funny. You know that you can try to rekindle a relationship. You can try to get back together with that person. You can try, but... Always that thing that you really can't even talk about because it hurts too much. Betrayal is breaking trust. Betrayal is breaking a social contract, but it's more than that. It's, it's almost cashing in on a relationship to get something temporary that you consider worth more than the relationship in that moment. Judy, Judas hands over Jesus to be killed for 30 pieces of silver. He's willing to see his friend, his savior, his Lord, although he won't call him Lord at the Last Supper, put to death because he wants five grand? The money is not the issue. It's that relationship, friendship, family, community, it's one of the most beautiful godly things that God has created for us. And when we turn it into a commodity that we can sell for money, we've messed with something holy. Now, chances are this is a topic that's very personal to a lot of us. Now, the moment I started talking about betrayal, your mind instantly went to that person, that relationship, that event, that, that thing that happened. And for some of you, it was big. Like someone stole something from you that was big. Stole your loved one. Took advantage of you. You brought them in. You gave them everything. You would have given them anything, but they took it instead. And they treated like that whole relationship was worthless to you. And it, it broke something in you. And it's not just that it just broke your relationship with them. It's almost like it broke you towards the world because now you can't trust anyone the same anymore. 
And on the Last Supper, Jesus draws out that one of the 12 would do that to him. And Judas is scared. One of the 12. Why would Judas betray Jesus? Maybe the devil made him do it. Luke and John in their accounts, they say that at certain points in that whole betrayal scandal, that Satan entered into Judas and he took the money. Or Satan entered into Judas and he handed over Jesus to the authorities. That, that the devil literally made him do it, in a sense. And yet on the other side of that equation, Jesus draws out in this passage about his betrayal that it was part of God's plan for Jesus. He says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad and began to say to him one after another, Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. Surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. This is part of God's plan. So Satan was driving Judas Iscariot. In a sense, the sovereign plan of God was driving Judas Iscariot. And yet at the same time, Judas Iscariot was driving Judas Iscariot. Jesus says Judas is responsible for what he's done. Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man, Jesus says. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You know, we... If you've ever been betrayed, that's one of the questions that you ask is, why would you do this? If someone steals money for you, you're going to say, I would have given it to you. Why would you violate this relationship? Why would you treat me? Why? Why? You may have been wrestling with why for years. Why? The devil make him do it? Does God know this is happening? Are they just an evil person? Why? I think betrayal reminds us that the world that we live in is broken, it's dark, and for a lot of different reasons, we all do things that are completely boneheaded more often than we would like. Chances are, as many of us in this room have been betrayed, have been betrayers. I wouldn't say that we're a bunch of Judas Iscariots, right? We're good people, right? But something happens, right? You get caught up in a conversation, then you say something you shouldn't, and now you've betrayed a relationship. You get caught up in a circumstance, you feel like you're backed into a corner, and all of a sudden you lash out and you've ruined a relationship. You never thought you'd be a betrayer, but you are now. This is the world that Jesus stepped into. A world full of people who would betray him. And we don't know why Judas betrayed him. Did he want the money? He seemed to like money. Was he getting sick of Jesus, right? The last account we have of Judas is Jesus is being uh, worshipped by that woman where she's pouring the perfume and Judas is indignant and saying that money could have been spent on the poor, right? Is he getting sick of the way Jesus is living his ministry? We don't know. Does Judas feel like Jesus, Jesus should be the Messiah and he should rise to power, but instead he keeps talking about his death? And is Jesus saying, or is Judas thinking, man, Jesus is sold out. He's not going the pathway he should be. Who knows? But at some point, something tweaks in Judas. And there's spiritual warfare involved, and there's the sovereign plan of God involved, and there's Judas' own sin and lack of trust and lack of worship involved. 
And he comes to Jesus and he betrays him. Judas betraying Jesus cost Jesus his life. And that's what he was doing. Handing him over to be murdered. Yet at the same time, the betrayal of Judas cost Judas his life. When Jesus' words, woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man, it would be better for him never to be born. Judas, his betrayal of Jesus started eating him alive. Gives the money back. He's trying to figure out how to atone for his sin. He doesn't know what to do. It's just, it's inside of him. And it's, he sees that Jesus is crucified and it's because of him. And eventually Judas goes and he takes his own life. Because he's eaten alive by the betrayal that he's done against God. And in a sense, and that's a picture of all of us, we have betrayed God, we have turned our backs on God, we have not lived for God's glory. All of us have betrayed God. Right? In a sense, everyone around that table betrayed Jesus. Right? The next story in Matthew that we'll hear next week is, is Peter betraying Jesus and denying that he even knows Jesus. We see as Jesus marches to the cross, the disciples start to scatter and disappear. That when he is crucified, there's only John left at the foot of the cross and everyone else is hiding and cowering and running. They scatter. In the moments when their Lord needed them most, they all betray him. And yet in that moment around the table when Jesus singles out Judas, the rest of them are saying, surely not me. (laughs) Peter says, Lord, if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. But they do. Scholars believe that after Jesus called out Judas, he probably snuck out the back door. (laughs) This is getting too awkward for me and left. And he left to go get the authorities to come find Jesus in the garden. And Jesus finished this meal with the disciples, with this new angst in it. Can you imagine eating after hearing that news? Have you ever gone to dinner with a couple or had dinner around the table and someone shares something heartbreaking at that dinner and, and you're sitting there trying to choke down your steak after that? You lost your appetite. It's almost like as beautiful as it is for a family to eat together in harmony, there's nothing more awkward than sitting in a broken relationship trying to eat together and pretend like everything's fine. Some of you grew up in households where you'd sit around the dinner table and pretend like everything was fine all the time. That's, that's not how we're supposed to eat. We're supposed to eat in harmony and in beauty, in love, in an unbroken relationship, in the holiness of that moment. And yet, like Jesus draws out the Last Supper, the, the whole point of it was to prepare them for him to die The woman we talked about last week came in and worshiped Jesus and he said, she came to prepare me for burial. And Jesus had just told them a few weeks before, it's time for me to go to Jerusalem and die there. They sit around the table and he says, Judas, you're going to betray me. And then at some point in the meal, Jesus takes the bread. And Matthew says, while they were eating, he took it, gave thanks, and he broke it. 
and he passed out the bread, which was customary in the Passover meal, was to take bread and break it and pass it around and, and give it to everyone at the table. But when Jesus broke the bread in that meal, he gave it this new meaning. He said, eat this, and here's what I want you to remember when you eat this bread. This is my body. And then he took the cup. And normally one of those first three cups was to signify that God had rescued them, that God had saved them, that God had redeemed them. And Jesus said, when you drink this cup from now on, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood. In the Passover meal, they would remember the blood of the lambs that were killed and put upon the doorposts of the houses so that the angel of death would pass over the house and the people would be saved. Jesus says, now I want you to remember my blood which saves you. The meal takes a turn. And it's not celebrating what God had done. Now it's looking forward to the atrocious act of crucifixion that would happen the next day. This is my blood. This is my body. This meal tonight, Jesus says, is a pivotal point in human history because up to tonight, you celebrated what God had done in the Exodus. And from here on out, you're going to gather together and you're going to eat and you're going to drink and you're going to celebrate what I'm about to do tomorrow for you on the cross. When we receive communion, and we'll be able to partake in communion together this morning, communion is a time where we remember this Last Supper, and we remember the crucifixion. We remember the stories from the Old Testament. We remember everything, and we remember that it all points to Jesus. That his body was given on the cross, and that bread that is broken signifies that. That his blood was poured out. That the, the blood that saves us is not the blood of bulls or goats or lambs. The blood that saves us is the precious blood of Jesus, the lamb without blemish or defect. That he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his stripes, we are healed. When we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we remember the one who became the new story that we remember whenever we eat together, whose event of crucifixion became the new story we recall when we sit around with our church family and we weave in the story of God. We talk about the gospel, about a God who would come and save us and die for us and rise from the grave so that we might have life. It gives us new meaning. In a sense, it's a meal, kind of like the second half of the Last Supper that's a little bit somber, because we're eating and drinking and remembering that the one who's at the head of the table is about to die. And we did it to him. And yet he did it in the plan of God to rescue and redeem us. Normally at the Passover meal, after doing the first three toasts to remember God's rescue, God's salvation, and God's redemption, they would sing a song together. It was called the Hallel. It was a portion of a few of the Psalms. They would remember God's saving acts that he had done and they'd kind of close up their time remembering the amazing works of the Lord in the Old Testament. And then after singing that song, they'd raise the fourth glass and they would celebrate that God had made them a people, that he drew them out of Egypt, that he saved them, that he rescued them, but that he made them into a people, that they were the people of God now. They were a family because of all these acts that God had done. And the unity that would come in that moment would be beautiful. 
This family that has eaten and drank and sang together, they end with this toast that we are a family because God has made us a family and we will be a family forever. And Jesus says at the Last Supper, I'm not going to drink the fourth cup tonight. He says after he passes the bread and he passes the cup, he tells us that he's done drinking toasts for a while. He says, I, I tell you the truth in verse 29, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So that fourth cup that they would normally drink together after singing the song, Jesus says, my lips aren't going to touch that one. Matthew says, when they had sung a hymn, most likely that Hallel after the third cup, they went out to the Mount of Olives with the fourth glass sitting on the table. They didn't get to celebrate that they were a family that night. And Jesus said, someday we'll be back together and we'll drink then. Tonight we're going to talk about the fact that I drew you out, that I rescued you, that I saved you. We're going to celebrate that. We're going to look forward to that crucifixion. I'm going to rise again. Someday I will bring you to be with myself and then we'll pick up this fourth glass and we will drink because in heaven, in the kingdom, we will be a family again. We'll sit around a table like this, but probably infinitely larger, right, with people from every tongue and tribe and nation in the history of planet Earth, and we will celebrate, we'll drink together the fact that our Lord Jesus has reconciled a family and drew them out from every community on planet Earth, that he is the one who has brought us out, that he is the one who has saved us by his blood, that he is the one who has redeemed us, and with that fourth cup in the kingdom, we will proclaim together that our family has come back together in unity again, that betrayal has been paid for, that our sins against God was washed away on that cross, and that now, finally now, can we eat together as brothers and sisters with our Lord and our King. This morning, as we share communion together, it's not a meal that's going to fill you up. You're not going to walk away from church this morning feeling like, man, I can't eat another bite after that piece of bread <laughs> and that thimble of juice. In a sense, it's an appetizer. It reminds us of what Jesus did on the cross, and we proclaim his death until he comes. But it also whets our appetite you know, for the wedding feast that we will share with him in the kingdom. Now that we take this communion, we receive this communion together regularly as a church, and it sustains us. We remember the one who has died for us, but someday we will feast together with him. And that meal will not be somber. That meal will not be awkward. That meal will have no hint of betrayal. That meal will be beautiful and unifying and eternal.